Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. May is one of my favorite months because we honor and celebrate the Blessed Virgin Mary. We crown her statues in our churches and we resolve more Marian prayers in our own life. We can honor the Blessed Mother in so many different ways, and my new book, How They Love Mary, explains that. But another way, beside the devotion and the prayers that we pray, that we can honor the Blessed Mother is perhaps by wearing socks that depict the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I was so excited to see that Sock Religious has a new Our Lady of Fatima sock that they just released this month. And if you are a big devotee of Fatima, I encourage you to buy a pair of those socks and to wear them proudly during the month of May. They have other Marian socks as well, including Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of La Leche, and other Marian designs. Head over to Sock Religious by clicking the link in the show notes and get your Marian socks and celebrate the month of May in style. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. For the next 28 weeks, and of course, we've had a few episodes already, and so for the forthcoming weeks, every Monday, there is an episode that is breaking open one of the people featured in my book, How They Love Mary. And then on Thursdays, for the most part, I'll be releasing an additional episode of different topics related to Catholic life and such. And there's an individual that was not included in How They Love Mary, who most certainly should have been. And one of the reasons why I didn't include John Paul II in the book, How They Love Mary, was because, first of all, Father Michael Gately had written quite extensively about John Paul II in his book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. And then secondly, Jason Everett wrote a book on John Paul II, The Five Loves of JP2, and he featured Our Lady. So I thought anything that I could offer would be redundant, that anything would pale in comparison to these two major contributions. But yet, John Paul II is worthy of our conversation, and in the month of May, there are some significant events related to JP2 and Our Lady, the first being the fact that he the attempted assassination on May 13th of 1981, and then uh, the visit of Our Lady of Fatima, the statue, and all of, all of his involvement with Our Lady of Fatima. And then, secondly... Just uh, John Paul II's birthday was on May 18th. So a fitting way to celebrate his birthday is by talking about the woman he loved and just about his life in general. John Paul II took totus tuus as his papal motto coming from St. Louis de Montfort, saying that true devotion to Mary was one of the most influential texts he ever read. Today, I am speaking not with Jason Everett, I'm not speaking with others, but I'm speaking with Patrick Novakoski, who also has written a book about JP2 called 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. He has a great love and admiration for 
our past Holy Father, and he is an award-winning author, a journalist, and a speaker with a passion for the new evangelization and for Pope St. John Paul II, whom he met five times in his life. So, Patrick, I'm grateful that we're having this conversation today. Father, it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, you know, there's so much that we could say just from your history with John Paul II. How did you meet him five times in your life? Well, it was certainly Providence that led me to this. I was a young 28-year-old journalist working for the Marians of the Immaculate Conception, Father Gately's Order, and uh, I was the assistant editor of their Marian magazine. Now, uh, I'll give you a bit of background first. Um, at the time, uh, in the late 1990s, uh, their superior general was Father Adam Benetsky. Now, Father Adam had been a professor at the Catholic University of Lublin with this man named Carol Wojtyla, who went on to be Cardinal Wojtyla, who went on to be John Paul II. That's a little bit of background. Uh, so so um, the Marians had a very strong connection to, to, to JP2 going back decades. And uh, I, I'm working in Stockbridge, working for the Marian Helper Center, and uh, I'd only been there a few months. And every Christmas they would have uh, their vendors donate prizes. And the top prize that year, 1996, was a trip for two to Cancun. And uh, who wins it but the new kid, the, the young journalist. And uh, so uh, I remember receiving the, the news, being there, and I, I thought it was a joke. But uh, I had actually won the grand prize. But I didn't want to sit on a beach in Cancun. My heart's desire, my faith had been newly rekindled. I was 27, 28 years old, and I wanted to go to Rome. That that was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, the second thing, background, is that John Paul II had told the Marians a few years earlier that he wanted them to lead the re-evangelization of Eastern Europe. So part of what what we did at the Marian Helper Center through the Marian Helpers magazine was to talk about the works of the Marian in Eastern Europe and how they were actually doing that, their, their seminaries, their novitiate, and their the works that they were doing in Eastern Europe to you know in, instill the new evangelization into this area that had just really relatively newly received its freedom. Um, so my boss heard that I was going to Rome, and he said, well, you're single, you might as well stay at our house there in Rome and, and, and do some work for us. And, oh, by the way, would you like to meet the Pope? And that, that was just like the mic drop moment. Like, uh, yes, please. Um, so I got to Rome in late September 1997, and I was on the list to meet the Pope. So how it worked was if, if you were on the list and, and you were a priest or a bishop, you would have first dibs for the, the seats in the Pope's private mass uh, in, in his, his chapel. And if you were a lay person, you, you kind of got the left seats. And lo and behold, October 1st, 1997, I got one of those seats. And, and I was also the, uh, the webmaster of Marian.org. So I uh, had the mass in, in the, the Pope's private chapel and then uh, got to greet him afterwards and had about 60 seconds to present him with pages about Divine Mercy and Faustina. And uh, then I went to Eastern Europe and I, and I traveled through several countries in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia six weeks in Europe, came back, wrote those stories. They were a great success. So the Marian sent me back in 98, 99, 2000. 
And each of those times I had uh, either an audience with the Pope, three, three private audiences, three, three in, a, in his private chapel, and then two um, encounters in the square that I had with him, including um, on my honeymoon, uh, I brought my wife. We went to Rome. We were supposed to see Novelli, the, the newlyweds who got blessed by John Paul II. And that was actually the last time I saw him in April of 2002. So you're working for the Marians of the Immaculate Conception. You're the single guy who wins the prize to Cancun. And you say to them, I want to go to Rome. Is that what you did? Absolutely. And I did. And, and, and then they uh, said, well, if we're going to change this, I want you to work for us while you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they gave me two weeks vacation. But I met so I met technically I met John Paul II on my vacation. So <laughs> Uh, not a better way to spend your vacation time, in my opinion. <laughs> so you're a single guy who meets the Pope. You mentioned that your last visit was as a newlywed and that you met uh, the Holy Father with your wife. So tell us, how did, you, how did you meet your wife? I met her on Ave Maria Singles, as a matter of fact. It was the last week of the Jubilee year, January of 2001. I just, it was like God said, you're going to meet her in the Jubilee year. And, and it was in the waning hours of that where we met online. And uh, I was in Stockbridge and she was in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, working for Mother Assumpta and her sisters in one of their, their small schools started by Tom Monahan. And uh, so we met, we fell in love and got married 13 months later. And um, here, here we are, I just celebrated our 20th anniversary of, of matrimony. How many children do you have, and is one of them named John Paul? Uh, we have five children. I, w I wanted to name the first one John Paul. Uh, my wife vetoed that because she had been a kindergarten teacher teaching dozens and dozens of John Pauls, and nothing against the Holy Father, but there were some of them who were terrors. And so she just couldn't live with a John Paul. So we settled for Jonathan, Jonathan Patrick, and uh, I was pretty content with that. He got the JP. JP to Jonathan Patrick. That's that's great. Now, yeah. so you go on to write, of course, this book, 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. This means that you've had a fascination with John Paul II for a very long time, not only because you encountered him, met him in the private chapels and, and in the square, but there's obviously something else going on that has spurred this interest in John Paul II. So... What sparked your curiosity and interest in studying this Polish Pope? Oh, that is such a good question. I actually had, uh, I think it was a mystical encounter with him when I was 16 years old. 1984, John Paul II became the first Pope, and to this day still the only Pope until this summer, Pope Francis is coming to Canada, first Pope to ever visit Canada. I grew up in Saskatchewan. And um, John Paul II toured the country. It was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of, of the Pope coming to Canada. It was a big deal. And, and uh, I didn't get to see him, but I, I had the chance to go with some church ladies to Winnipeg and see him there. And I don't really remember the reason why I didn't. But during that time, I had this incredibly vivid dream that he came to my house and that he gave me a hug. And I still remember what that felt like. I still remember the room where it happened, and it was so profound that uh, growing up as a regular teenager, 
who wanted to write for Rolling Stone magazine, as a matter of fact, um, I, I, I still to this day remember that that um, that dream. And and so there, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. That was 1984, and it was only 15 years later that I met. Not even four, four, 13, 13 years later that I met him in person. And but I, I didn't give him the hug. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. You go from wanting to write for Rolling Stones to writing for Marion Helpers and writing in other capacities. So God has used your talents in much greater ways. So um, as you look at John Paul II, you've identified 100 ways that he changed the world. What do you think is his most significant contribution or his most significant accomplishment? You know, it was really difficult to narrow them down because, so what I did in the book was I, I took the top 10, actually I'd been giving a talk about his top 10 contributions to, to, to the world. And that is what morphed into the book. So I kept those top 10 in, in the order in which I'd been talking about them for, for several years in, in the book uh, and the other 90 are in somewhat of an importance order but they're more in a logical flow they kind of connect to each other as you read 99 to 98 to 97 uh, they kind of feed on, on the theme and they connect to each other so it, it was really difficult as I said but I, I ranked at number one the new evangelization simply because as Paul VI said so well the church exists to evangelize and and for I, I think for for many years the church had had taken its eye off the goal of, of why it even existed. Um, you know, Vatican II and and the fallout of Vatican II it was very a very difficult time. John Paul II just I, I think went back to basics. He unpacked the Second Vatican Council throughout his pontificate and focused on this new evangelization, new in methods, new in ardor, new in expression. And, and I think that that, um, that teaching, that, that way of expressing the gospel in, in new and vibrant ways, it, one of the examples is your podcast. You know, the, the, it's, it's a modern way of communicating the truths of the faith um, in, in a way that younger people, and even older people like me, um, can, can grasp on to you and, and uh, digest it on, on, in our own time. Um, I'm, I'm doing the Bible in a year with Father Mike Schmitz, and, I, and I'm rediscovering the beauty of the Bible. And um, I told my kids it's an R-rated book, so read it carefully. <laughs> <laughs> because we're broken people. We've always been a broken people in need of a Savior. That's really what the Bible is saying, that, yeah, we're broken, we're awful people but jesus came to redeem us it's a great story a, a passion love story that that um you know people really haven't changed um and and so we need this we need to be evangelized and and john paul ii did that i mean everything that he did whether it was um divine mercy or whether it was the catechism of the catholic church all of his travel um all of these things pointed to evangelization because that he knew that people's hearts needed to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. So that was, and, and I think that's why Protestants admired him so much, um, as, as well as, as Catholics, because and, and people of any faith, 
because he he was genuine, uh, he was he was charismatic, and he he had his eye on this this goal of bringing people into right relationship with God. So I'm looking at your book that you wrote about John Paul II called 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. And so, you know, some people might think you'd begin with number one and you'd lead up to 100, but you're doing like the top 100. You're starting with number 100 and you're going yes. down to number one. And so that number one is what we've discussed, the new evangelization. Now, I see a lot of different contributions here, lots of things that we could talk about, of course. Um, just uh, this past week, I talked about Padre Pio on our podcast. So I uh, interviewed someone from the National Center for Padre Pio and learned about Padre Pio. And so uh, I see number 97 is friendship with Padre Pio. But, you know, one that really stands out to me, because it's a little bit of the controversy around John Paul II, is number 93, relations with Islam. I hear mm. so often, John Paul II kissed the Quran. And so people say we should not honor him or we should, you know, kind of be scandalized by this fact. What do you make of that? Yeah, uh, John Paul II wanted to um, have a good relationship with all faith leaders. That was number one. Um, the fact that he kissed the Quran, I've read a number of things about that incident. Uh, it was a gift. Um, did he actually know it was the Quran? Maybe. Um, maybe he regretted doing it. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that is a sore point with a lot of Catholics. And, and I, I get that. I, I mean, honestly, if someone presented me with a Quran, I'd say thank you. I'd probably read it. Um, but would I kiss it? Uh, probably not. Um, I, I wouldn't hold it nearly in the same esteem as the Holy Bible. So, uh, and, and people have to remember, John Paul II did a lot of good things. Uh, this one, it's questionable. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to defend it because uh, it's not something that I would have done. Uh, but the fact that he's a great saint doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that he was perfect. He, yeah, he made mistakes. He made errors in judgment, and and some of them, very, many of them, very public. Um, Cardinal McCarrick is another good example. Uh, Mister McCarrick. Now, um, he trusted him, and and um, he elevated him to to cardinal. And the, the man was a, a professional liar, uh, just a great deceiver, and um, and and brought great scandal to the church. So. Um, but John Paul II didn't have Padre Pio's gift of reading souls. Um, and he was also on the world stage 26 and a half years, made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and, but in my mind, far fewer than other people who are in the public eye that long. So, um, so that, there it is. <laughs> Sure. And, you know, maybe this is just me opining here, but sometimes there's these tensions between Christianity and Islam. And maybe this was like this healing moment for the two to say, we can get along, we can try to coexist and we can uh, uh, come to some mutual understanding of who we are in relation to our sacred texts. Absolutely. And, and, and he did He did bring faith leaders together in Assisi several times. And that was just how you expressed it. That was his desire. We don't want to be at war with one another uh, as, as faith leaders. We, we want to come to an understanding 
of each other and, and have um, a mutual give and take. How do you convert someone who is um, a, a, an imam? I mean, the only way is to engage them, to have a relationship, to allow them to express their faith in your presence and allow you to express your faith in their presence and build some mutual understanding. And, and perhaps the Holy Spirit will enlighten that person. Many Protestants have come into the Catholic Church because they've heard uh, the, the, the church and the truths of the, the faith uh, expressed in, in a beautiful and compelling way. So, um, but if there's no relationship, that's just not going to happen. I have a great love for the Blessed Mother, as is evident from this podcast, from my latest book, How They Love Mary, my other writings, the fact that I serve as vice president, and probably by the time this episode is released, the president of the Mariological Society of America. And so uh, Mary plays a huge role in my life as a Christian believer. And I always remember, you know, that story of John Paul II, and I believe it was brought out uh, in that John Paul II movie that starred John Voight. Maybe you remember that film. And mm -hmm. actually, a funny story about that film is that I think it released on CBS on Wednesday nights, two weeks. And so I actually skipped religious ed class to watch the film <laughs> on CBS because I thought I would get more out of that than I would from going to RE. Whether that was right or wrong, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but when you see the life of John Paul II, there's always this pivotal moment. His mother dies. He goes to the altar in the local church, and he says, Mary, you have to be a mother to me now. And then if you look through your book, which has 100 lessons that we can take away from Pope John Paul II, there's a lot of the Blessed Mother here. You have Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Guadalupe. You have his devotion to Mary, Our Lady of Chestahova. The list goes on and on about his love of the Blessed Mother. What can you tell us about John Paul's love for Mary? You know, he came from a very devout family. His mother was very devout. His father, when his mother died, he was 12 years old. Uh, 11, 12 years old, and, and his father actually was the one who said, now she's your mother. I think that was expressed a little differently in the film, but um, he, he often went to Chestahova, uh, and, and the first time he went back as Pope is his, um, his homily, his, his, his speech was recorded, and he said, how many times have I come here and poured out my heart to you and said, Totus to us, I am completely yours. It was it was really uh, at, at the school of Mary uh, in Chestahova that he was formed in this. And as you said earlier, uh, Saint Louis, Louis de Montfort was his book, True Devotion to Mary, was uh, the most compelling thing that the young Carol Wojtyla read, and and it really was very formative to him. One thing that I learned in writing the book is that. He took the motto "Totus Tuus" when he was um, when, when he was elevated to auxiliary bishop of Krakow, um, and it wasn't something that he took as pope. Same uh, same coat of arms, same motto that he carried through his whole life. And and we we just passed the forty first anniversary of the assassination attempt on the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. One year later, just forty years ago, he went to Fatima and uh, to thank Our Lady for saving his life there. And uh, the, actually, the bullet that was closest to his heart, 
um, it, at, at that attempt was welded into the crown of Mary in Fatima, still there to this day. Yeah, so his Marian devotion is so rich, so profound. You know, another aspect you bring out is the fact that he gave us the luminous mysteries of the rosary. Now, Father Donald Calloway is quick to point out that the luminous mysteries were really proposed by this other venerable or servant of God, maybe blessed, some other individual kind of already recommended us praying about the public ministry of Jesus. But yes. John Paul wrote that letter. He wrote two letters about the Blessed Mother in his, his pontificate, Redemptoris Mater, and then he wrote Rosarium Virginis Mariae. When we look at the writings of John Paul II, when he writes, you know, some of these great encyclicals, Veritas and Splendor, Doc and Ultum, Pastores Dava Vobis, you know, there's always that prayer to Our Lady at the very end. So the, the devotion to Mary is present all throughout his pontificate, and he gives us the luminous mysteries of the rosary. The rosary was something that was so important to him. You even, uh, you said, you know, to sit in the school of Mary, and that's how John Paul II described the rosary, that it was like sitting in the school of yeah. Our Lady. And uh, any anything else you'd like to add maybe about his rosary devotion? Yeah, so the priest that we're talking about is a Maltese priest. He's actually St. Saint, Saint George Prescia who was beatified by John Paul II in 2001 and canonized in 07 by Benedict. Um, so uh, the, the idea of having luminous mysteries was not original to John Paul II. And the other thing that people fail to recognize is that he proposed this. He didn't impose this idea. Uh, and, and for the most part, Catholics went, well, yes, of course. Why didn't we think of this earlier? <laughs> what took us so long uh, just to fill in? Because it, it's it's it, it's a meditation on the life of Jesus, and we're miss public ministry. So um, my my family, we we have, we've embraced the the luminous mysteries and, and pray them regularly. So, um, but yeah, I think you encapsulated his his love for Our Lady very well in in your introduction to this question. You know, the other aspect, too, of uh, the rosary and him proposing the luminous mysteries, something that I myself have considered is that that there are other additional mysteries you could reflect on. They haven't been proposed by the magisterium of the church or by the Holy Father or anything, but one of the rosary mysteries I love to reflect on is what I call the early life of Mary. And so kind of the desire of Jochum and Anne to have children, and then you have their infertility, then you have the Immaculate Conception, the birth of Mary, her presentation in the temple. And so those are some of the things that I think really we could actually focus on the early life of the Blessed Mother, really taking what John Paul II did with the luminous and maybe even incorporating other mysteries uh, into our prayer. As I look at your book too, um, there's another recurring theme, and you name it friendship, that John Paul II mm -hmm. had a lot of different friendships throughout his life. He had a friendship, you say, with Padre Pio, a friendship with Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski. He had a friendship with Ronald Reagan, a friendship with Mother Teresa, a lot of different friendships all throughout his papacy. What did friendship look like for John Paul II? Wow, beautiful question. Uh, I think his friendships began, well, of course, in his family. Um, he, he lost his father when he was brand new. I think he was 20 years old, 20, 21 years old. They had just moved to Krakow when he turned 18 to for him to start college. Um, father died, and 
and he was in a sense orphan, but he had had his, his his theater group. He had his seminarian, his the underground seminarians that that he was he was um, with on a regular basis. As a young priest, he he had these young people that he was in charge of this youth group. They would go kayaking, they'd go hiking, and he would minister to them. And that that was a really formative um, part of of his life. That and and those friendships. Some of those people, those young people that he ministered to early in his priesthood, came from Poland dressed in the same clothes that they wore. And John Paul, for, for his funeral, um, and, but, and they kept up a regular correspondence. He kept up correspondence with them. Uh, they had regular visits to, to the Vatican when he was pope. Uh, friendships were deep for him. Um, and, and, and they meant something that, you know, I think, think today in our, our secular age with social media friendships, um, it, are, are, are maybe not quite as deep. And one thing that I learned working for the Marians from the Polish Marians is that the word friendship in Poland is, is like we would call brotherhood. It's solidarity. Uh, they, yeah. they think they, they use that word in, in a context that has a lot more depth. Um, as opposed to acquaintance. So I, I was really schooled by the Marians in saying that, you know, that, that person, you, you know them, they might be your coworker, uh, but they're an acquaintance. They're not really a friend because you've not spent time with them. You've not been to their home. So friendships for, for John Paul II, because he, he had no family, were were so so important and and he kept them alive even as he became the supreme pontiff there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to john paul ii he's such a magnanimous figure in that he forgives the person who tried to assassinate him that anniversary we just celebrated on the feast of our lady of fatima he was one of the great saint makers of our time giving us so many holy examples and intercessors in the kingdom of heaven. One of the things I saw as you wrote was intervening with the Jesuits. I really would have liked to have talked about that, but, <laughs> but I'm going to direct people to your book to read that. Uh, so there's so much there, a hundred different uh, takeaways that you have from the life of John Paul II. And when we're talking about a hundred, these, these aren't long treatises. It's not like you're dedicating 10 pages or whatever to each one. Like they're very short synopses of what John Paul II did in terms of religious freedom or divine mercy or angels or his you know letter to artists. That's something I hear about all the time. Mm. So it's a very beautiful book uh, that you've contributed. And uh, it, it, I think will help people rediscover uh, the role of John Paul II, and maybe they'll take him on as a saintly friend in their life. Amen. Amen. I would love people to uh, to pick up the book. And really, I, I wrote it as a primer for people who uh, want to know more about him, for young people who were maybe children or not even yet born when he died in 2005. And, um, and also for those of us who grew up with him, I learned in writing the book that I missed so much of what he did. He really was, um, he had, he had, uh, such a, a breadth and depth of, of experience that he applied over this 26 and a half years. Um, can I, can I give you my website where people can find me? Yes, please. I think I have two more questions for you. Oh, that's, let's do that. Okay, sure. So the first would be, 
I think that a lot of people have some reservation about John Paul II. And, and, and the sense is, I think because of he was the Pope when all of these sex abuse scandals were going on and such. And so some people think we might have canonized him, made him St. John Paul II too quickly. How do you respond to that? As I did earlier, he, he was a very flawed individual. And he was um, he, those flaws were exposed very publicly. And you have to remember that you know entry into heaven as a saint doesn't require you to be perfect doesn't require you to be flawless it, it it god looks at our heart and says do you have a heart for me or for the world john paul ii had a, an amazing prayer life he was so devoted to to the lord in the eucharist uh to the the truths of the faith and and he made some pretty bad mistakes. He trusted the wrong people. One thing that I did learn about him is that when people gave him his word, he believed them. He trusted them in, in communist Poland, and where, where priests were slandered all the time, where plots were hatched to bring priests down. Some of them were true. Some of them, some of them worked. Some of them didn't work. There was actually a plot to bring him down when he was cardinal uh, sure. uh, to, to instill a scandal. Um, so he knew that there was a lot of trickery about. And when people like Cardinal McCarrick or uh, the founder of the Legionaries, I can't think of his name, Marcel um, Father, Father, Father Maciel, came to him and they said, oh, but Holy Father, they're just lies. He believed them. He took them at their word. So, um, and yeah, the scandals happened under his watch, absolutely. And when it was abundantly clear that they were true, he took action. Uh, and 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 the, actually, very late in his pontificate, that he he took action. And yes, it was too late. The the scandal was there. The wound was exposed. And thank God that it was exposed, so that it could be. Um, Lanced, I guess, and 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 that all of that that the terrible, terrible work of the devil in our church could be exposed and healed, and and we still have work to do. But uh, was it his fault? Did he act too late? Perhaps, uh, but he trusted people, and he trusted the wrong people. That doesn't deny his sanctity, though. My last question is: in your biography at the end, the about the author of your book. It says you made Pope Francis laugh out loud. Tell us about that. <laughs> so this was actually about eight years ago. I was in Rome with the Papal Foundation. Now, the Papal Foundation does a lot of great work. They uh, so wealthy, wealthy Catholics uh, that contribute to this fund that, that helps education and evangelization around the world. Uh, wonderful projects. They invited me to come come along with them to write a story for Legatus Magazine. I was the editor of Legatus Magazine for 12 years. And uh, so I went to Rome, and I'm in Clementine Hall in the Vatican, and I'm with 100 people who are going to meet the Pope. And I'm in line, I'm getting closer, and I can hear them uh, you know, kissing his ring, and, and he, they're flattering him. And I'm like, you know what? I just don't want to do that, because Francis is a humble guy. He doesn't really need or want all of this. So I'm, and I'm thinking, what can I do that's different? Well, again, a little bit of background. So this is a Friday. And two days earlier, the president of the Rome Marathon had presented Pope Francis in the square with a finisher's medal as a photo op to promote the marathon. Well, 
I'm a runner, and I had actually signed up and trained for the Rome Marathon on Sunday. So here it is, Friday, and, and so my turn, I come up to Francis, and I'm holding his hand, and I said, Holy Father, on Sunday, I'm running the Rome Marathon. And I waited a second because his English isn't so good, but when I could tell he understood me, I just shook my head, and I said, Please pray for me. And Cardinal Whirl, who was introducing me, he laughed out loud. Francis laughed out loud, and then the Pope says, I do, I do. Well, that's and great. And he did. <laughs> so that's wonderful. You know, if you're ever at Wheel of Fortune, I hope you tell Pat Sajak <laughs> that little anecdote. <laughs> I hope to as well. Well, very good. So tell us about your website. Where can people find your book? Where can they learn more about all the work you're doing in Catholic communications? Yeah, so I've got a couple of websites. Um, my, uh, my, my work is um, at, as, at Nova Media. I started a company called Nova Media to help Catholic organizations to, um, to get, gain a, a larger audience. Uh, so that website is catholicpublicist.com. Uh, my book website is patricknovakoski.com, but nobody can spell that. So just go to booksbypatrick.com. And you'll find it. I'm leading a pilgrimage to Poland in the footsteps of John Paul II in October. And that website is theconnectedcatholic.com. Go to that website and you'll find out all about the pilgrimage and how you can sign up and come with me to, to Poland to celebrate John Paul II. We will actually be in his the, the place he was born on his feast day, October 22nd. We'll be in Varavica. What a gift. So so you can learn more about John Paul II from the book by Patrick Novikovsky. You can even follow in his footsteps alongside Patrick Novikovsky as you would make a pilgrimage. Well, thanks so much for joining me today on How They Love Mary and to share about your great love for John Paul II, why we should love him, and most importantly, how he loved the Blessed Mother. Thank you, Father. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope that the conversation with our guest was one that was enriching for you as much as it was for me. I am so honored that you listen to How They Love Mary. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd encourage you to rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so that others might begin to see this podcast show up as a recommended podcast for them. I look forward over the next 28 weeks of discussing the different figures from my new book, How They Love Mary, available from Sophia Institute Press. If you haven't gotten a copy yet, head on over to Sophia Institute and acquire your copy today or wherever you get Catholic books. Thanks so much for listening today. May God bless you today and Mary pray for you.